Off the Ball on News Talk. Thanks to Air. Catch all the sports you love free on the Air Sport Pack with Air Broadband. I'm delighted to say we're joined in studio by Brian O'Driscoll. Evening. Good evening. Two more years? Yeah, two more years. And it's an absolute disgrace that it's taken this long for just you and I to be able to be in a studio together. Well, you see, we didn't fully know each other when you signed your initial contract, but then you've had time to look around and and, and and you wrote into your contract, I'm not doing this (laughs) unless I get the brains of the operation. A giant rugby brain needs to be asking me these questions. This relationship's gone from strength to strength and there's no need for McIntyre. He's kind of surplus to requirements. Well, I know know he went to Belvedere and he, you know, he has that rugby background. He grew up alongside Andy Dunn and a team there. Listen, you've got the hard-ass Mayo questions here. (laughs) This is what you want. I understand the game as you're about to see. Uh, it's been a tough old week. Uh, it has. It's, do you know what? Um, it's felt like a bit of a slow death over the last two weeks since the report came out. Um, was there a sense at any stage during those two weeks that you had a chance of winning it? I felt there was none. And then you hear some Chinese whispers and I know that our council members were doing you know, their, their level best to try and sway opinion. And you got a sense that on one day it was looking better than it had been the previous day. And then by the time we got there on Tuesday, it wasn't looking so rosy. Uh, All the talk was actually had switched from South Africa to France uh, at that stage. So, um, yeah, it was almost like we we nearly felt like, well, I felt like we needed to be finally put to death because this, that element of hope was, you know, keeping us hanging on. Mm. And because there's a blind ballot, I suppose you always live in hope that someone might shaft someone. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll talk a bit about that, about the whole transparency aspect. Um, Does it get a bit degrading in those last couple of days that you're quite literally having to go around begging people to change their mind? Well, I wasn't involved in that, thankfully. But yeah, you know, I'm sure um, Pa Whelan and, and John O'Driscoll um, were, were putting Ireland's best foot forward, trying to show what we could offer Um you know, and trying to um, encourage, particularly, you know, um, the home nations to get on side. I think that was a big part of where we were looking to. We knew it was unlikely we were going to get the Scottish vote. We were trying to get the Welsh vote. Um, but alas, I think that fell by the way. Well, that looks as though it's fallen by the wayside as well. So it wasn't from a lack of trying. And um, the lobbying that went on, in inverted commas, um, was obviously pretty impressive by the French because they turned whatever it was, a two and a half or three point percentage deficit mm. to South Africa on that report into almost a first round victory um, to, to get 18 votes um, in the first in the first round with 13 to uh, South Africa and eight to ourselves was pretty impressive. So, um, yeah, not many people after the evaluation report thought that uh, South Africa were that viable an option. We heard your interview with Neil Tracy when you were over there on, on Wednesday and your your disappointment at only been able to secure the eight votes when with the amount of effort that the committee have put in and the amount of personal interest you've given this over the last couple of years is that difficult to take that all that effort results in such a crushing defeat? Yeah, but you know it, it felt like that immediately and then when you pair it back and you look at it a bit more closely it, it is a fine margin thing it is it's a swing vote and that Welsh vote um, essentially was huge now, not one for fi- pointing fingers um, I can understand the rationale behind why Wales mm. went with South Africa so 
their chairman, Garrett Davis, was part of the committee set up to um, come up with this new um, criteria for um, for nominating the, the most viable applicant. And so when World Rugby came up with South Africa, it was difficult for him and as a result the board to to look to their own decision and not mm. go with what World Rugby's or what this evaluation report has, has found. So I can understand that. That said, Celtic Nations, Pro 14, Six Nations, yeah. everything that goes with it, relationships, Lions, all of that uh, is thrown in the mix and, and you would have hoped to have gotten them on, your, on side. So if you look at their vote, it's, a, it's the proverbial six-pointer. You take the three of South Africa that they gave them, that reduces them to 10. They give them to us, we get to 11. We get into the second round. And in the second round, there's every chance that you get a huge portion of South Africa's votes that are, that are, are now gone. Mm. So you look at the Kiwis, the Aussies. They've done their job in round one. Are they going to vote for Ireland? You would hope so. I'm not saying France wouldn't have gotten enough to get over the line, but I think it might have been a lot tighter than you would um, necessarily look back and, and consider was was plausible. I guess the question then is how we got to this stage of the bid without having their support in the bag. It would have almost been assumed when this started that we can count on the support of England, Scotland and Wales. There's literally no point going forward with this unless we can count on their support. Now, Scotland, I think, made it clear quite early they were going to follow the money. But with all the politicking that goes on, with the relationships that have been built up through the Pro 14, through the two unions, the disappointment in that group, in the committee, not to get that Welsh vote, it, does it leave a lot of bitterness within the committee? Um, I think there, there was obviously big disappointment mm. that they didn't go with us. It's probably I think slightly different for you in that it, you it move is. on you know, your life I, exactly. in a different way. I don't, I don't have to deal Philip with them Brown on a, on a weekly basis or a monthly week. basis. Um, I'm not on... Six Nations committees and so on, where you have to rub shoulders with them. Um, I think from from the overall picture, you have to realise too that they went and and went with the the nominated team of South Africa and then didn't get the job done. So they they sort of dirtied their bib with us, and then uh, in the in the same breath, they didn't actually manage to elect the team that um, had been nominated. So it's it's almost a double loss from their perspective. Um, you, you know, listen, we'll we'll all move on from this, but um, you know, elephants elephants don't forget, um, and we'll you know there'll be other decisions in in future, be it Six Nations or Lions decisions. Yeah, that I'm sure we'll have, and it will impact in some capacity because I suppose what goes around does come around. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what sort of long-term ramifications there are for those relationships, particularly when you think of something like the Pro 14 and the value of Leinster and Munster to any league and the money that is there in France and the money that is there in the Premiership, who would only be too happy to see the Irish provinces to become a part of that over the coming years. And in fairness, you know, social media is sometimes a bad barometer to judge anything by, but... There was considerably more Welsh people getting on saying we're devastated that you know, the WRU didn't vote for you guys. We mm. would have loved a World Cup over there. Of course, you had a few. Um, I did have someone somewhat entertaining send me a picture of, of a baby throwing their toys out of the cot. So there's, you know, you're going to have, you're going to split opinion. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's, um, it is on, on, um, on a country that you would feel would would side with you the majority of the time in your hour of need kind of it does feel that we were let down and we needed everything to go our way particularly having been nominated the third, you know, third best side even though all three were very viable options 
to be to go from third to first would have completely discredited um that the whole process. So I, if I'm it's not, not discredited already, I, listen, it's a it's a lesser version of discrediting. Mm. But if we'd gone from third to first, I think there would have been absolute outroar. You would have had two you know, super nations of the world up in arms, and um, yeah, there's there, I think there's lots of other factors to yeah. it as well. I think the factor. Of Money. Japan in in yeah in, in 2019, is there a little bit of a concern with it going to new territory there? Absolutely. Um, and do you take a second risk of go to a nation that's never hosted it before or one that seems to be in a bit of uh, turmoil in, in South Africa? Um, so is the safe bet to go with France? Without a shadow of a doubt. They were offering a bigger package. They could deliver it. You know, if you gave them a month's notice, I'm sure they mm. could put it together. They've got everything. They've got the, the credibility of holding, you know, Olympics. Well, the Olympics, the, the following year, World Cups, European Cups, um, the, the Rugby World Cup in, in 2007. So, you know, it's, a, it's an easier decision to go with a side like that when 90% of uh, your revenue of a four-year period culminates from one tournament they can't make an error two tournaments on the bounce there's understandably some bitterness when you put so much in and you don't win it and there is a little bit of throwing the toys out of the pram when you don't get it and questioning everything but the Welsh votes were so important that if Ireland had won the technical vote there's a very good chance that Ireland would then have gone on to win it's speculation, you know. I, but listen, when, you're, with, when you're meeting afterwards and you're meeting for the final time and you're going through everything, are there regrets there about what went into that technical report? When you think of security, that somehow South Africa get a better score in security. That, but the, that's the that's the that's got to be an error, right? I, I'm 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 not here to pull the report apart, but I don't think you it, have to be a genius error, to realize their part or an error on. On our I, part, I don't think in what they were looking yeah, for. Yeah, did we understand the the, the specifics mm. of exactly what that meant? I don't know if that's the case. Likewise with Stadia, did we know? Would we have bothered with a pitch if we'd known that it was going to impact us so badly that our stadia weren't built as opposed to the plans to build them? Mm. I, I would have thought if we had known all of that information, we definitely wouldn't uh, have been f- so forthright in, in putting ourselves forward and putting us ourselves out there. Um, the fact that it is an initial report, um, first time ever doing it, um, you know, there was always going to be an element of the unknown involved. And unfortunately, that element of unknown has really come back and bitten us on the asses. Ultimately, it seems as though it came down to money that France can guarantee a return for world rugby. That was what interests Scotland. That is probably what interests Italy. That's what interests a lot of the nations who are struggling right now and they want that guaranteed return. Part of the committee must feel, why didn't you just tell us this two years ago? If your dat desk, if it was always going to come down to the return, we knew we couldn't match it. Why drag everybody through this? Yeah, listen, it's funny. I, I the more I realise, you know, my involvement being involved and and seeing what happens on a, um, on a monthly and yearly basis, it, there's so much politics in sport, and I thought. I'm not saying I thought we were impervious to politics, far from it, but I thought it was less impactful in rugby. It's absolutely not. It's it's um, it's as big and it's as relevant in, in rugby as it is in any other sport. And um, I don't know, was there... Um, what, what level of deals could have been done, what horse trading uh, went on, I, I'm not sure. I know that we didn't get involved in, in any of that, um, but... Um, 
the reality is we have to accept the decision. It's France 2023, not Ireland 2023. They'll host a great World Cup. They know how to do it. Um, I, you know, have to suck it up and unfortunately lick our wounds and go back and see as the process evolves and if there's modifications made to it. Um, do we then have another pitch in four or eight or 12 years' time? Yeah, it's probably and, eight or 12. At the moment, I, I, it's very hard to see four years' time. You know, everyone, there's such a body of work went into it that the thought of going again... You is, can't just copy it's, and it's, paste a good chunk of that. Exactly. It's like, how, like we had Geldof and Liam Neeson. Like we'd have to resurrect WB Yates or something, <laughs> you know, for for something more impactful. So um, I, I, we, we kind of topped out first time. <laughs> I don't know where we're meant we to go. We called in all the favours. I don't know where we're meant to go. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll know with a little bit more time. But it's, you know, it's frustrating because I think we gave it our best shot. We did. Um, we couldn't magic those stadia into um, completion. So, But everything along the process was close to perfection as as I think we could have imagined and you take um some relief from from that as well that you don't look back and go oh if we you know t- you know 18 months ago if we hadn't made that error if we it wasn't a screw up along yeah, the way if we'd if we'd had more foresight there we could have done that or plugged that hole I, I don't sense that there was any of that so there's with that we take uh comfort that you know we were not um, the most viable option according to all the council members and you have to take them. We're going to talk about Ireland-Fiji in a moment but I want to talk to you about Ronan O'Gara and the news that has come out this week that he's in talks with Canterbury to move to Super Rugby next season to take over as an assistant coach. There's always rumours about Ronan moving back to Ireland and he always says he wants to go through the process and wants to learn coaching properly and when he does eventually return he ultimately wants to be ready and you sort of think at times well you're saying that but when the big job comes you'd step right in moving to New Zealand granted for the best rugby club in the world it would be a hugely brave step Uh, yeah it would I think you know he's done all the right things uh, from a coaching perspective he's stepped away from his comfort zone he's gone into new markets understood his trade or or the need to evolve uh, his understanding of how the game works from different different perspectives. Mm. He's gone and learned a new language. Um, he's up, you know, up his family from Cork. You know, he's got five kids and a very understanding wife. <laughs> and um, I'm sure he's learned an awful lot in the last three and a half or four years. Um, this opportunity has come along; it's presented itself. He's obviously doing something right where um, Dan Carter has sent word back home to, to Canterbury that you know, maybe, maybe absolutely that he could um, that he could help them. Um, you know, maybe a bit of word has come back as well from his time in Ireland camp via Greg Feek as well uh, within you know, th- that route back to Canterbury too. But um, I think it would be a great move uh, for Ronan because you know the Kiwi Kiwi way is very different than the Irish way and the French way. So to get a more holistic view of how you can coach, I think would only um, serve him well when he does eventually come back to these shores or wherever next he goes. Because he's climbing the ladder, there's no doubt. And is Canterbury an improvement from uh, from Racing? Yes, it is. And then inevitably he'll want to come back home and inevitably he'll want to coach with Munster. And one day he will say that he'll want to be Irish coach. But 
be careful how quickly you get to the top too, you know. Uh, it's a long life ahead of us. Mm. And, you know, if you get fast-tracked really quickly and you get there at 46 or 47 and you get two or three years there, before your 50th birthday, you know, you're falling down off <laughs> the fast side of, the, of a peak. So, yeah, you, you know, you have to be... You have to be smart, and I think he's been very smart thus far in um, in in the way he's handled himself, the way he's gone about staying in touch with the relevant parties too, plugging himself into the Irish setup with Joe, um, with his, all his tweets wishing Munster so well in their next European Cup game, and how much he adores them. You got to play the game. He is playing it magnificently. I I, I get into him about it. Um, you know the the prodigal son coming home the last two seasons. Uh, with Rasting, but he listen. He's um, he's monster through and through, and it's it's inevitable that he'll be back there in the not too distant future. I would think it seems like an incredibly exciting opportunity and such a smart move from him, considering we've something of an obsession with Southern Hemisphere coaches in Ireland and probably in the Northern Hemisphere. Is there a big difference in quality of coaching? I, I don't know. You look at you, I, I had. You'd have to spend time down there to appreciate mm. that where their level is at. You, you get the impression that their basics are considerably better. Well, they are better than everyone else in the world. Their catch pass, um, their ability to do the simple things very well under pressure. That looks as though it's one of the aspects that they're front runners in, in the world. With um, the 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 skill set of their tight five in Super Rugby and in the All Blacks, I think supersedes everyone else in the world and allows them to play that fifteen man game, um, where it doesn't matter, you know, with number on your back, whatever position you find yourself in, you can be a rooker as a winger or you can be a ball player as a second row. So, I think they've been the the um, standard bearer of that style, and everyone else is still playing catch up. I think the rest of the world has realised that that's the way they have to go, and that's great from an Irish perspective. We're seeing the likes of Tyg Furlong coming in, and that's that's his game. He reads the game. He he can play. He can scrummage. Um, he can lift. So he's he's almost of that mould. I think you just need everyone in your tight five to be able to do that too. To match the best teams. Is that happening here? Is that yeah, coming? I think we're, go- this I think we're going generation? in the right route. Yeah, I do think we're going the right route. I think you look at, um, I think Jack McGrath's skills at the, are, are probably a little bit better than Kean Healy's, but Kean's abrasiveness at the moment um, is better than Jack's. Um, at Hooker, Rory Best was always you know reasonably skillful player. You know, he's, he's definitely in the winter of his career. The new breed coming through. I, I, I need to see a bit more of Niall Scannell, what, what his game is like there. But, Devon Toner's skills have come on no end under under Joe Schmidt and and uh, Stuart Lancaster and Leo Cullen in the last few years. He'd become a playmaker. Ian Henderson always had a great offloading game. So um, and John and James Ryan is going to be a quality yeah. player. So if you if you look at the at the Irish second rows and the Irish front rowers, you know, along with Dave Kilcoyne and some other uh, other guys John Ryan can play too yeah, we're, we're definitely going that direction we're definitely an improvement on years gone by um, but with work to do I know there's a, a large southern hemisphere presence at Racing at the moment but from everything we've heard of the culture of French rugby it does sound as though it would be a massive culture shock to move from French rugby to New Zealand rugby and the standards that are expected of both yeah but it's been a huge culture shock for him to go to France too and they do things very differently there. You 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 have to be very self motivated as a player too. You know you hear it from you know from the likes of Johnny that came back. You know he, his stint didn't work as he as he would have liked, 
But even from a point of view of going to the weights room, a lot of those people that are want uh, players that want to go and do that extra workload, it's on their own bat rather mm. than it's you know than yeah rather than being forced uh, to do so by the strength and conditioning guys. So the really great pros are willing to do it, but lots of guys take the easy option. And um, I, so that culture shock has already happened. Would it be another culture shock? Of course, but I think you're going into an environment where um, you would learn so much in a short space of time down there and see how things are done and streamlined and how they fast track players, um, how they identify players you know, people at a young age and what it is that they look to focus on. You look at the at the baby blacks, they haven't won that under twenty World Cup um very often in the last four or five years. And that's largely because they're not big into their set piece. They're all about they're all skill focused. And they say at twenty twenty one they can always build that technique side of things of of you know their ability to scrummage their ability to function well off set piece and line out so that comes as part and parcel of developing as mm. a player um but at the you know you do look at them on the under 20s boy can they catch pass and and do the basics extremely well and they won't lose that and they don't lose that you know you you well you you only lose that if you don't continue mm. practicing that and, and they obviously do that they do a huge amount of skill work but um but then when you start adding the other dimensions to their game it, you know that's why you can see you see complete sides, and that's why you see the All Blacks, uh, you know, supreme team more often than not. Let's turn our attention to Ireland against Fiji. Then uh, huge changes, thirteen changes to the side. The back three: Andrew Conway, Darren Sweetenham, and Dave Carney. Joey Carberry getting a start at number ten. Reese Ruddock captaining the side. Looking at Joey Carberry at number ten, Joe Schmidt. Is there a frustration there, do you sense, that he's not getting to see him at all at number 10 at Leinster, that it's all playing at full back? And why is he playing him at 10 and not giving him a chance at 15? It's undoubtedly a frustration for Joe Schmidt. Um, yeah, he wants him um, to be in uh, the 10 jersey. He's his backup um, 10 at the moment as, as as we stand with the trials and tribulations of what's going on with um, with Paddy Jackson uh, in, uh, in Belfast. So... Um, Joey is the automatic second choice 10. Um, he obviously had a phenomenal uh, debut coming on and closing out the game against the All Blacks in Soldier Field a year ago. He had some mixed fortunes in the summer. He probably didn't play at his very best over in, in, in America where they still got the job done because you know, Ireland are a superior team to, to, to that uh, American side. Um, but yeah, you know, as well as Joey has been playing at fullback, um, it's a learned skill, constantly you know, playing week in, week out, and it's a completely different game that is needed. Much less time at ten. Uh, when the ball's kicked down to you at full back, you've you know you've time on the ball. You can pick your option, kick, kick, pass, run. It's you know very little. Uh, most of the time, very little pressure on you. Whereas at ten, you know it's instantaneous um, reactions. So. You know, a player that that has played full back for the season, it's going to take a little bit of time for him to get in there. But Joey Carberry's a natural footballer, so you'd imagine within 5, 10, 15 minutes he'll play his way into the game you know, with doing some simple things very well. Because you, when you were talking on Monday Night Rugby with Eddie O'Sullivan about Robbie Henshaw and potentially Henshaw ending up at full-back at some stage, you were making the point that you need to be super talented to be able to switch between positions. When you look at Joey Carberry, do you see someone who's super talented who can do that with ease? Yeah, I do. I do. I think um, he, he sees himself as a 10, but... 
I think you look at some of the super talented players around the world at the moment um, and an obvious one is Bowden Barrett who's played a good bit of uh, 10 and 15. Damian McKenzie's done some 10 and 15 as well. So it is the obvious switch. You know, if you're going to have multiple positions and one of them is is 10, um, you know, it's it's easier to, to fit into 15 uh, because you're able to read the game well and you have to have a clarity of thought when you're in those two positions as to pull the trigger with the, with the correct decisions. You can also see the 10 playing a little bit of 12. Could I see Joey Carberry playing 12? Absolutely, if you wanted that second distributor, just a couple of question marks as to whether he has the physicality mm. to be able to match match the likes of a Stuart McCluskey coming running down uh, his, his channel or you know this weekend this guy um, but he I think his name is uh, the Fijians that are listening to us who's uh, playing a back my, row my, at club level my pronunciation isn't spot on but he plays back row and centre uh, and this guy's an absolute animal so he'll be a handful uh, for Carberry in, in the 10 channel he'll be he'll be you know looking for advantage line ball all day against them is there a risk that we waste a couple of years of Joey Carberry by just leaving him as backup to Johnny Sexton? Okay, there's always the risk Sexton picks up an injury between now and the World Cup and you want Carberry to be ready. But why isn't Schmidt looking at him as a 15 right now for the World Cup? He obviously doesn't see him as a 15. He sees him as a backup 10. Um, I think if, and he's shown it in the past, that if if Rob Carney is fit, that he's his guy. And... Um, you know, does Joey have all the attributes um, to play 15 in a Joe Schmidt team? I'm not sure. Joe likes guys that do the basics extremely well. He's not He's not after flashy players. He likes guys, you know, good team players, honest workhorses, and don't make, uh, don't have a high error count. Let's say Joey makes a lot of errors, but he tries things and he can do, he has, you know, wonderful X factor and creates something from nothing. But he also is prone to the odd uh, error as well. Now, that's exciting for us all, yeah. but not so much for a coach. And that's why you've seen the likes of Rob Carney in, at 50, in the 15 jersey. Jared Payne, likewise, he doesn't make an awful lot of errors. So, um, yeah, don't expect that to change. If, if he continues at 15 and he plays brilliantly for Leinster for the season, he keeps Rob Carney out. Well, obviously, then he's going to have to look at him in, uh, in February in, in the Six Nations. But for now, I think he sees him as his backup 10. Yeah, and he wasn't afraid, Schmidt, to heap a little bit of pressure on Joey Carberry ahead of this game as well because of his lack of game time at number 10. He says, we don't necessarily have many windows for Joey to accelerate his learning. So this is his opportunity for us to try and accelerate it to the best we can. Talks about his lack of competitive minutes at number 10 says it's going to be a tough day at the office for Joey we really want to see how he negotiates that really when you look at the inexperience of this side and having been in Schmidt's dressing room what does he look for for inexperienced players when they're thrown in at the deep end like this well, he's, he's been talking in the papers today about um, he's looking out for individual performances but that individual performance is, is just in doing the role that they know is assigned to them extremely well and that is as a cog within the wheel and that allows everyone to be able to function better in their performance too. So, so is it all decision making? For, yeah, he's not looking for individual brilliance. He's not looking for moments of magic. If they come, that's, that's an added bonus but he's looking for that ability to have continuity irrespective of who the players are, that they know the plays and the lines of running as well as the guys that were in there last week, that you're still able to bring the same level of physicality that was done uh, in defence uh, against South Africa, keeping them trialless, 
Um, all of that onus now doesn't shift because you've got a second string team coming in there. I think all that chat during the week or you see in the papers today with Joey Carberry and with other players, it's trying to put a pressure and squeeze it on them to see if they're actually up to the challenge because he wants guys that are mentally tough, physically obviously able for this standard and for this level, but are they mentally tough in being able to deal with an extra force of pressure coming from him and a level of expectation? Is he looking for these players to almost be a, a carbon copy of the player that's in the first 15? Um, yeah, but you, 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 I think there's an appreciation from Joe that, you know, it's not like for like. You're not getting the same player in uh, Stuart McCluskey as you're getting in Bundiaki. You're not getting um, the same in um, uh, Jason, Jacob Stockdale as you are in, in, in Darren Sweetnam. So um, you have to be able to fit into the focus of what the team is trying to do. And they do a huge amount of power plays. And by power plays, they have a lot of setup plays where, you know, they have to look for hard yards in phases two and three to be able to manipulate a defence to make them make a poor decision and then they're able to counteract that. So, so much of the early stuff, rather than attacking and trying to score off first phase, a lot of it is really setup stuff. Um you see occasional breaking of that in the um, in the in a beautiful line-out move um, where Stockdale went through last week in mm. the lead-up to Reese Ruddock's try. It was a brilliant uh, line-out play, but for the most part, it's about um, understanding you have to break teams down, and you've you've got to be able to try and pull good systems apart, and then put players through holes in making a decision where you've one of two or three options and playing heads-up rugby and being able to pick it on the move. So it's always working with the thought that you're going to be playing in England or New Zealand and that nothing's going to come easy in those games. Yeah, and, but I, but he, he, you know, Joe does so much analysis on the opposition that he tweaks and modifies all the plays to, to counteract what their defence does. So you, we see the same plays being done yeah. time and time again, but... He does. He he pulls them back in because he knows a particular defence is going to react a certain way. We've seen that, you know, a couple of hit ups, and then um, Murray to um, to Rory Best and the ball, and looping around and the ball back into Rob Carney. I couldn't believe he nearly got through again, and only that Tyg Furlong couldn't deepen the rook long enough to to not allow the guard from the far side to come back and make a last ditch tackle on um, Rob Carney. So. Like it's all those tiny, minute details that allows the team to have those line breaks, and it's 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 it sort of amazes me that he's able to pull the plays back yeah. from years that we've saw we've seen with Leinster, but brings it back in because he knows a particular individual or a t- particular team likes to do this, and teams are, cre- are are creatures of habit. So he can identify that South Africa, the way they're set up, the way they're coached, the way they are individually even though they have probably looked at this video, it's just not in their nature to counter it. Yeah, they, he, he, can, he, he can make them make bad decisions. He can get his players to make them make bad decisions. So, you know, I, I think as well when, you, when, uh, when you're fatigued, at particular times of the game, plays will be pulled out, you know, ten minutes, five minutes, ten minutes before half time when there's fatigue setting in or in the last 15 minutes of a game where players switch off mentally a little bit and they get back into their habits or where you chase a player across the, the field in defensive line rather than playing hard up in and I'm trying to play a zone defence. Um, so, you know, with hours of research and hours of analysis, you only get to identify 
individuals, but also how systems and, and what errors they make in those systems and then how you can put them or how you can punish them as a result of it. It's a huge amount of information for any player to have to take in. They have, I can't tell you the amount of information they do have to take in and the expectation. And when Joe doesn't, when Joe does a new play and he shows a new play, get it first time. It's not like, oh, I, I, sorry, I only saw that once and you only ran through it for a second on the whiteboard and sorry, I, I wasn't sure about my line of running. That's gone. There's an immediate expectation that everyone gets it right, which can be a bit frightening, particularly if you're new to, to that setup. And he probably cuts a small bit of slack of, you know, the younger lads, a Jacob Stockdale type player. You can't frighten them in a new environment early. But, um, but players, that experienced players that had never been coached by Joe before, that had come from other provinces outside of Leinster, they got a shock when he came in and the expectation of getting it immediately was put on them. Well, we heard this week you got a shock yourself back in the day. <laughs> the story finally, finally was uh, made public. It had sort of become an urban myth. And, one of and the that's first, what it is, right? Is it? Is it? So just in case anyone missed it, uh, Fergus McFadden was talking with Luke Fitzgerald on his Two podcast. liars, liars. Uh, early in Joe's time at Leinster back in 2010 about four or five games, games in we're playing Cardiff I think it was it wasn't a defensive scenario but it was in attack someone threw Drico an absolute daisy cutter of a pass Drico drops it slippy day hard one to take Joe's gone through it and eventually he comes to you and he's not quite happy Joe's picked out the clip with Dr- Drico dropping the ball he just to the group flippantly says yeah Drico good players take those and stopped and turned back to the footage the whole room, there was a collective gasp and it was like, Jesus, who is this guy? It was a great way to set out a stall. Whether it was pre-planned or not, I don't think it was because Dricko was like, Jesus, that hasn't happened to me in about 10 years. The problem with this is that I've had my Joe moments with other people and now I'm getting my comeuppance <laughs> with us. <laughs> Do you know what? It's, maybe I've extinguished it from my, from my memory. It quite possibly did happen that way. And you try and... But um, maybe it was one of those things that for, for you, you were able to take it and that's why he, was, he gave it to you and it wasn't a big deal. But for everybody else in the room, the fact that this leader, that he singled you out, they're like, whoa. Like, it, it, this moment did happen. I don't remember it specifically being a video session. It, it, by the sounds of things, it's probably quite right. Um, but it, it was a thing. And that line was used... Um, until I retired it was like good players catch them if I dropped the ball of training <laughs> the lads would be on immediately good players catch them so it, it definitely be, did become a tagline and I remember being put in my box It that makes it sound like I was you know chopped at the knees I, I probably was a bit ooh but like you get on with it you know everyone no one's impervious to um, to being um, put down or being um contradicted on, on on an opinion and Joe is the best man um, to make sure that's the case. It, 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 was it always clear from his tone that always. he didn't want to be questioned? You, If you were going to question him you had to have a serious counter-argument and there was lots of times that I was confident on something but I let it go because <laughs> I just wasn't it wasn't definitive whereas um, if I did feel as though I felt strongly enough about something I would challenge him and if you put a good enough argument up, it mightn't be in total agreement or he, might, he mightn't totally accept it. But if it was decent enough, he might go, all right, fair enough. I see where you're coming from. We'll still do my way. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why he has so much time for analysis. He doesn't have players coming into his room every 20 minutes bitching and moaning. He, he has um, set his stall out exactly as all coaches should do. Back to the game then. The centre partnership, Chris Farrell, Stuart McCluskey, two big boys 
is that a needs must when you look at this Fijian side? I don't think they're pick. I don't think he's picking because of the opposition. He's picking because these two guys deserve their opportunity. Um, Stuart McCluskey certainly, if um, if you're an Ulster fan, um, people feel has been very hard done by since his first cap against England um, a year and a half ago, mm, eighteen months ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he didn't do too badly on the day, but I, I just don't think that. Um, he's a favourite of of Joe Schmidt's. Um, I think he what he does do he does extremely well. But I think in Joe's team you need to have a little bit more to your game, and he'll definitely put pressure on him this week to show show him that he has more than a power game and and an offloading game, and that he's he can be physically dominant. He's going to want him to be able to be a distributor and someone um, that can link backs and forwards um, and show that he's got um, you know a, a fuller complement to play with um, than maybe perception currently is. And Chris Farrell, we've seen, has made a few errors with his passing so far. Bernard Jackman was saying during the week from his time with Grenoble that he's a far better passer of the ball than we've seen. Is it a similar situation with what Schmidt is looking at with him? He knows he has the physicality. But if he doesn't have those basics, he's not going to last here for too long. Yeah, I'm interested to see um, Farrell. I quite like him as a player. Um, and he's, um, yeah, there was one game where he threw a couple of um, a couple of passes that weren't a million miles off, that drifted a little bit forward. And if they hadn't gone forward, they would have been, you know, almost try-scoring passes. Um, so... You know, he looks that as doesn't though sound like a Joe Schmidt review session there. No, but he he looks as though he he has a skill set um, to to play more of a game than just a power game. So, listen, you know, you're playing with a ten that wants to run the ball. Um, I wonder will they kick the ball less as a result of Joey Carberry and and Marmion it not being the strong points of their game. They're both running players. They've got a back three that do like to counter attack. You know, kick when they have to kick. But you look at Sweetenham; he's going to want to get the ball in hand. He'd a he'd a cameo at the weekend and and did well. But he's going to want his first start as uh, something to remember. Ball in hand, as as all wingers do. And Conway uh, is is out to 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 full back. Um, and Dave Carney getting in on the wing. So they're you know those those two guys are very much Joe Schmidt players. Um, again, committed. Um, obviously very talented players, but do the basics extremely well. So I'm looking forward and hopeful that they're going to try and play with good, a good expansive game with good width where we see the centres showing more than, um, than bludgeoning the opposition. Because as well, you have to remember, if you run into the Fijians, you know, they're there they to hit moving. you. They, they aren't going anywhere. So you've got to move them around. So we're going to turn tradition on its head somewhat and we're going to play the running game. Are Fiji going to play a running game? But do they know any other way? Um, have that, they not changed slightly? Have they not, have they not sorted out their set pieces? Their set pieces a bit, are not a bit more better. Solid? But, but you don't have to. Listen, you, you can, yes, you can maul a little bit more. But once you get your, your set piece is a means to playing the rest of your game. It's not going to dictate whether you win or lose. Oh, sorry, it might, it might dictate you losing, but it doesn't necessarily always if you mean if you get a an um an ascendancy in in set piece that you're going to go on and and beat a side it's it's um it's a structure to be able to go and play the rest of your game and they they want to be able to offload they don't want rooks that's just not their game that you see it in their sevens it's always been the case in their 15s too they like throwing 50-50s and you look at some of the firepower that they have obviously everyone knows um 
Nakawara from playing in in Racing, who's come from um, from Glasgow. Um, uh, but the back three of um, of Nadolo and Nagusa both playing in um, in Montpellier. Um, and your man, this guy, um, Murray Murray Valu, um, plays with La Rochelle. Like these guys like to counter attack. You're not going to see the ball kicked a lot from them if Joey Carberry kicks it in behind right. them. So you want to make sure your kick contest is good because we saw in uh, the RDS when um, when Leinster kicked poorly to Nadolo, he um, destroyed them yeah, when he carried you. back. You know, he had he carried for over a hundred meters in that game. Um, and scored a couple of tries. So you're going to have to have a smart kicking game because ultimately they do want to counter-attack. They're a counter-attacking mentality. It is a sellout, so there should be a, a decent atmosphere and Josh Smith should get what he wants. He should get these players tested by a Fiji side who are ninth in the world, who are looking above that already. It should be a, a proper test. Yeah, th- listen, they've won five of their or four of their last five games. Uh, they had a narrow uh, enough defeat to Italy uh, last weekend Where um, I don't think they had much time together either no, before that game and like listen the last four games I think it was Tonga Samoa um, Scotland and Italy maybe so some decent sides um, won well against Samoa in Samoa um, so this is a a decent side to be reckoned with. There's, you know, Matawalu's on the bench because his service at nine is pretty terrible but this guy Senalini um, scored a hat trick in the um in the Samoan game during the summer, so you know he he knows how to play ball too. So we should have an expansive open game where hopefully it'll be pretty entertaining. Both sides wanting to play and see some tries. All right, so that all gets underway half past five tomorrow to be a tasty little warm up as well between England and Australia. We'll look back on that game and everything else with you next week. Thanks for coming in, Brian. Cool. Off the ball on News Talk. Thanks to Air. Catch all the sports you love free on the Air Sport Pack with Air Broadband.